Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. If you've never jumped off your horse and knifed a cougar to death to save your hunting dog, you're probably not as cool as Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt is such a unique person. He's the kind of character that if you were writing him for the page or the screen, he wouldn't seem real. Because he is a study in contradiction. He is this hurricane of energy. He's this wall of charisma. And his accomplishments just seem too legion to belong to just one person. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Creighton. This is episode number 54, The Best President for Conservation. Today, we're talking about Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, when you when you hear that title, really, how can you think anything else? Uh, I'm going to be talking with a fellow colleague of mine, and uh, another teacher, Dave DeSani. Dave is a history teacher at Freeport Area High School. Uh, with me. Uh, he most accomplishedly uh, teaches the AP World History class at our high school, and he does just a phenomenal job. I contend that he is one of the best in his field in Pennsylvania, uh, honestly, possibly even the country. Uh, he's great. So some of the things we're going to talk about with Theodore Roosevelt are his formative years, you know, what built and, and made Theodore Roosevelt, who he was and why he was such a champion of conservation and the natural world, uh, his commitment to conservation throughout the years and throughout his presidency, and then also his legacy as the president who impacted conservation the most while he was in office. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt did a ton of things before he was in office uh, in regards to conservation. He did even more after uh, but it's really what he did during his presidency we're, we're going to focus on uh, the most. Uh, one quick thing, though, is uh, after Dave and I recorded this podcast, uh, literally just a day or two later, uh, it was announced that uh, the stat- Theodore Roosevelt statue outside of the Museum of Natural History in New York was going to be taken down. Now, this statue uh, is of Theodore Roosevelt on horseback. And he has an African-American on one side, a Native American on the other side, who are not on horseback. Uh, I believe the prevailing sort of thought process is that this portrays a white person above an African-American and a Native American. Um, so, I mean, when you look at it that way, I, I mean, I see I see it, I guess I understand. Um, but really, I think what any statue of Theodore Roosevelt outside the natural museum, the history, the museum of natural history. Uh, no matter what you put there, the reason why it's there is because he had such a huge impact on that museum. Uh, thousands and thousands of specimens that are in there are from him. Uh, there are, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of things about Theodore Roosevelt that are very, questionable to put it nicely um he had some very nasty things to say about native americans uh he did some things that 
at the time were viewed as uh, the right way to do conservation science that now we would think that's ridiculous. You know, he goes on an African safari, shoots uh, over 500 animals uh, to preserve them, right? To taxidermy and preserve them. Uh, that's not something we would do now to try to help those animals. Uh, but at the time, that's the way things were done. Just as his views on North Native Americans, uh, even African Americans at the time, that was normal. Now, when we look at history through our current moral fibers it seems ridiculous right uh some of the things he said about native americans that's like how would anyone how you know it's not right to say things like that you shouldn't be even thinking those things but at the time that was the the norm so i guess my controversial statement here is instead of completely trying to whitewash any any race history um we need to look at it through the eyes of the time and then we need to not justify it right um but just explain right we need to instead of just learning the good bits of history we need to learn the bad as well because when we learn the good we learn to continue to do the same things but when we learn about the bad parts of history which america has a ton of bad parts of history um hopefully we learn not to repeat them right so, um, you know, if they want to, if they're going to follow through and, and take down the statue, I mean, it is what it is. That's a, a decision above my pay grade, apparently. Uh, I only hope that they somehow find a way to put a statue of him back up somehow, um, because he has had such an impact on that museum uh, and conservation. He has done some amazing things. Uh, but like I said, we also need to talk about and learn some of the bad things that he did as well and, and said um, some of his beliefs just so that we can put in context that he was a human being. Um, as much as he's this, as you'll hear Dave talk about this sort of all this folklore about him and, and he seems as though this mythical person, um, he just was an amazing and uh, uh, an amazing person, uh, an amazing president, but who was also very, very complex uh, that has done some things that necessarily shouldn't be done. Um, but that's just part of what makes his history so intriguing uh, and so uh, enamored for so many people and to be able to learn from uh, so that we can build upon what he has done. All right, I'm not going to uh, go on any longer. Let's dive right in with Dave, uh, great orator that Dave is, and uh, I'll see you on the flip side. All right, so today, talking with my wonderful colleague, Dave DeSani. How you doing, Dave? Hey, great to be here, Jason. So, we're going to be talking today, as I said in the intro, about... Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, really, when we think about the modern conservation movement and everything that, that we do now, quite honestly, uh, he was the driving force behind everything. Uh, so we're really going to be highlighting a little bit of that and, and talking a little bit about, you know, I guess his formative years and sort of how he got to the point of, of loving the outdoors. So just to start everything, everyone off with just some stats real quick. This is what Theodore Roosevelt did as president. 
he, by, from the time he left, by the time he was out of office, which was cut short because of his own stupid words after he was reelected, but we'll get into that later. Uh, there was 150 national forests that covered 150 million acres, 51 federal bird reserves. There were four national game preserves, five more national parks, including Crater Lake, Wind Cave, Sully's Hill, Mesa Verde, and Platte in Oklahoma. There were 18 national monuments, which those were the first 18 ever decreed. And all of this adds up to 230 million acres of public land that we can enjoy now. So let's talk about some of those formative years, Dave. You're you are for since you're new on the podcast. This is your first time. No one knows who you are. You are the history teacher at Freeport Area High School. By also the best history teacher there, uh, possibly best in the state. You're really good. Hey, well, I don't know about all that, but I do. <laughs> I do appreciate the introduction. So let let's get some history of Teddy. So. Theodore Roosevelt is, it, he's a history teacher's dream because I have to hook in 14 and 15 year old kids and make them interested in this. And with Theodore Roosevelt, it's not very hard. I usually start off by asking, in education we call it the anticipatory set. <laughs> I usually start off by asking, you know, what's the coolest thing you've ever done? You know, I have my, my 15 year olds raise their hand and tell them about their great accomplishments. And the one I always go with, because they just seem to love this one, is, uh, well, I say, well, if you've never jumped off your horse and knifed a cougar to death to save your hunting dog, you're probably not as cool as Theodore Roosevelt. And they seem to they seem to appreciate that. Roosevelt is such a unique person. He's the kind of character that if you were writing him for the page or the screen, he wouldn't seem real. Because he is a study in contradiction. He is this hurricane of energy. He's this wall of charisma. And his accomplishments just seem too legion to belong to just one person. And his formative years and his time leading up to his occupancy of the White House and becoming president, it puts him in a unique position to be a champion for conservation like no president has been before or since. And it starts with, and I really hate when historians try to psychoanalyze historical figures across 100 years. And uh, now that I've said I hate it, I'm going to do the exact same thing. Um, (laughs) Two major events in Roosevelt's life made him uniquely suited to have this passion for the wilderness that is going to lead him to be such a great champion of conservation. The first is he is an unlikely hero in the conservation movement because he is born to this patrician, wealthy, one percenter type Knickerbocker family in New York. These are white collar, upper class, would never be caught dead getting their hands dirty kind of people. And he is born a very sickly child. He has asthma, he has allergies, he's snot nosed, and he basically grows up for the first five, six years of his life in, in a bubble. He can't go outside. So he becomes real bookish and he reads everything that his hands on. And he's reading about all these animals and about the wilderness and about all these these what will become the parks he'll protect and they're like a fairy tale to him they're like this forbidden fruit he can't touch then he goes to his doctor at the recommendation of his father and Roosevelt worships his father called him the greatest man he ever knew 
The doctor said, you're being stuffed away inside. That's the worst thing we could do for you. You need to leave a vigorous life. And he tells him these things like lift weights, uh, box, ride a horse. They, had, they bought him a mechanical horse. It had two settings, trot and gallop. And, you know, it's funny. We live such a pampered life here in the 21st century. If someone from the 19th century walked into a gym and saw people running on a treadmill, saw people lifting up and putting down a heavy object, they think they were insane. They're having a mental breakdown. But if you're in the upper class family like Roosevelt is, you're really not working that hard. So he needed that physical fitness, and he beats his allergies. He beats asthma. And now he can go out into the wild, and he loves it. He gets into amateur taxidermy. Yeah, that, that's the crazy thing about it. Is it he, had the, he had the Roosevelt Museum uh, that a bunch of maids quit because <laughs> they wouldn't dust his taxidermy. He had the parlor in this Victorian home, which is literally priceless, millions of dollars. And it would be filled with, you know, dead birds and mice and chipmunks and rats and jars of formaldehyde. <laughs> and his mother would be trying to host, you know, these millionaires and politicians. And, you know, there's little Theodore running. He hated being called Teddy, by the way. Here's little Theodore running around, uh, you know, showing people all the dead animals he found that day that he was, um, some of his early taxidermy. Taxidermy um, efforts were described as monstrous uh, by those by those who witnessed the, the results. But um, so he grows in. So that, that was, that's the first part. The, the, the wilderness, the, the, the wildlife to him, it, it was it was this freedom. It was a symbol of his triumph over his physical disabilities early in life, and, and he he loves the outdoors for that. And he grows up. He goes to Harvard, very successful. Becomes a politician in the New York Assembly. Um, by all accounts, he is incorruptible in a very corrupt age of politicians, known for his integrity. He is taking off his career like a rocket. He gets married. He has a daughter. And then he gets hit with one of the most unspeakable tragedies that's ever going to occur to any of our presidents. On the same day, in the same house, he is going to lose his mother and his wife. And for a lot of people, this would have broken them. And it does break Roosevelt. And he handles this tragedy in the only way he could. He runs from it. He writes in his diary one sentence about his deceased wife. The light has gone out of my life forever. And he never speaks to her again, never speaks of her again. He leaves his daughter behind in the care of his sister, and he takes the advice that so many young men of this era were taking, go west, young man. And with very little experience, he's going to go to the Dakota territories, and he is going to open a cattle ranch, and he's going to become a rancher. And it's during this time, in the Badlands, he is going to fall in love with the west. He will continue on. This New York dude, as they called them, he'll become a professional big game hunter, and he'll work for a outfitting company called Abercrombie and Fitch. Yes, before they sold forty dollar t shirts, Abercrombie <laughs> and Fitch was an actual I know, outfitting company, uh, and he hunts uh, in Montana for a couple of years. And there's actually uh, he his diaries are published. I forget the name of the uh, of, I read when I was a kid, but it, it's all his stories from that time. And you know he's encountering uh, a lot of encounters with, with Indians uh, and grizzly bears. He claims he saw Bigfoot, but I wouldn't hold your breath on finding <laughs> that one. Um, and um, so this this falling in love with things in the West. This is the second way that 
it's his escape from that tragedy. It's his renaissance. It's his rebirth. And so when he comes back and fate transpires to make him the president of the United States, I think he has a unique appreciation, a, a unique love for wildlife, love for the outdoors that no president before or since really had. Yeah, I mean, he's without a doubt for me the greatest president of all times. Um, you know, every, I can't say, I'm sure every president had their accomplishments in one way or another, and some had some tremendous accomplishments. You know, George Washington, you know, holding the country, brand new country together. Um, Abe Lincoln holding the country together. You know, there's been a whole lot of great ones, but to me, he is the best. Probably more than anything, just personally, I can't relate to his life, but I can relate to the accomplishments he had with conservation. The other thing about Roosevelt is that Roosevelt is important politically. This is going to play into the conservation angle in that he restores the power to the presidency. After the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, a guy named Andrew Johnson becomes president, and he will be impeached. And he will, he'll be impeached. He'll not be convicted, so he remained president. But that sort of broke the power of the presidency all the way up to the 1900s. In, in the late 19th century, the Gilded Age, as they called it, the most powerful politician in the United States was not the president. It was the Speaker of the House. <laughs> and then Roosevelt comes along. And Roosevelt loved this old African proverb, speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far. Roosevelt never had the speak softly part down. He was a loud ball of energy at all times, but he had the big stick part down. Um, for instance, when the United States decides, when Roosevelt personally decides he wants to build a canal through what is now Panama, uh, he basically engineers a coup and then waves a treaty not signed by one Panamanian saying that we are leasing the lands for 100 years to build this canal. He's a guy who just got things done. He said... While the Senate debates if what I did was right, the canal will be built. And that's the same attitude that he's going to have, the same tenacity he's going to have to meeting his aims as a conservationist. Yeah, I mean, really, if you really want to take a snapshot of his personality when it came to politics, look at how he became president. He was a governor of New York, and the wealthy, extreme, like uber-wealthy, industrialists then said how can we stop this political madman well how do we stop we can make him vice president there was an old saying in this era uh there was a couple ones about the vice presidency of the united states it was seen as a complete career killer the republican boss led by a guy named mark Hanna. they realized that they could not control that quote damn cowboy <laughs> and they needed to bury his career somehow he could not be bribed he could not be cajoled he seemed to always do what he thought was right and that was unacceptable <laughs> so they said We'll put him in the career trap that has destroyed a generation of politicians. We'll make him vice president. There were two sayings about the vice presidency. There was one joke that said a woman had two daughters, uh, two sons. One went to sea, one became vice president, neither were ever heard from again. One vice president described his position as, quote, not being war worth a pitcher of warm piss. <laughs> so being vice president was seen as his career killer, this ender. And then so Roosevelt is elected vice president. And William McKinley, who is the president of the United States that he runs with, he's on a whistle-stop tour through upstate New York around Buffalo. And um, 
funny story. McKinley used to wear this lucky carnation in the breast pocket of his, his tuxedo jacket, and he always would keep it. And one day he's on a whistle-stop tour, and what a whistle-stop tour is, you would speak off the caboose of a train, and the whole town would come out. they know you're rolling into the town at a certain time. You'd speak off the caboose, and you could roll to the next town. So you can give the seven, eight speeches in, in a day this way. It was campaigning. Um, he sees this little girl, a little blue-eyed girl, and he reaches and gives that lucky carnation to her. The very next stop, a man with a bandaged hand is going to push his way through the crowd. He wants to shake McKinley's hand. He does. He drives the bandaged hand into his ribs. It was not the bandaged hand. It was just concealing a revolver. He shoots McKinley at point-blank range. Roosevelt was out hunting in a cabin in New York. That's of all places. Of course. Where, where is Theodore? Well, where else is he going to be? He's in the woods. <laughs> and uh, he gets a telegram that the president has been gravely wounded, and that was his, uh, his, his, his uh, track to the presidency. Yeah, you know, I really, I really want to make sure we don't gloss over his trip to North, North Dakota, you know, and, and his life in North Dakota because when he was there, he saw the damage that overgrazing was doing from ranching. He saw the damage that market hunting was doing, and that all led to his next step, which was creating, in partnership with George Bird Grinnell, the Boone and Crockett Club. You know, 1887. Uh, anyone who's a hunter knows what Boone and Crockett Club is now, right? It's record keeping, and that's what it was then too. But it was they were keeping those records for a much different reason back then. They were doing it because they thought the bison and the deer were going to go extinct. They wanted a record of what animals were on the landscape. Now it's been sort of people look at it in a way that's more of of a trophy scoring system which it's not the exact reason why they're doing it they're they're doing more to to sort of see how habitat and how management practices are affecting the wildlife um it's it's a good you know over 100 years of data points you're able to see trends and things like that you know but he started boone and crockett club and the biggest thing that came out of the boone and crockett club for me and for all hunters now uh, is the idea of fair chase. So back in the mid-1800s, you, you had market hunting. It was literally shoot everything that you could, take only what you were able to sell, which oftentimes was the hide or the feathers. Very often it was not the meat. And do it at any time during the year. And there was a lot of waste. Boone and Crockett Club came by and said, hey, we need fair chase practices and basically you're just requiring hunted big game animals to be wild and free ranging right so uh, they're not in a herd setting they're not in a farm setting uh, and you know they're free ranging there's no uh, unnatural barriers I mean that that idea that is huge now in how we manage wildlife and it came out in 1887 an idea that we really take for granted as well. Oh, absolutely. Roosevelt is a pioneer of studying of studying wildlife as a science. Um, he and he, he seemed to be a little off on this when we're going, but he was experimenting. He he, he hated wolves mm -hmm. uh, and other and other um, predators because he thought that was helping to destroy his herds. Uh, and he actually was part of the movement that helped hunt wolves to elimination in Yellowstone. Which, as you know, uh, they've been reintroduced and are yes. actually doing wonders for, for, for the park ecosystem. Yeah. Um, 
it's it, it, and I'm I'm talking to sportsmen here, so I'm preaching to the choir. But when I'm talking to my students, they sometimes don't understand, what, especially this idea of fair chase. You know, oh, Roosevelt, he, he, he personally harvested so many animals. On one safari with his son, Kermit, to Africa, he personally harvested with just him and his son 512 different big game animals. And they can't understand how someone who, who harvested that much could possibly be this champion of conservation, but he absolutely was. And he believed in that fair chase. There's a story he goes on a bear hunt. Uh, and he was, with this outfitter, guaranteed a bear. And he hunts for a few days. I'm so glad you're bringing up this and story. And he doesn't see it. And so on the last day, he gets back to camp, and they say, Mr. President, we have your bear. And there was this young, sickly bear that they tied to a tree uh, that he was supposed to shoot. And Roosevelt gets absolutely indignant, uh, just just loses his mind on the guy. Uh, I'm not going to do this, you know, just, just tears him a new one up and down. This article hits the papers, and there was a toy manufacturer in New York City who could not get rid of this massive shipment of stuffed bears that he had been trying to uh, schlep on some poor customers. He writes the president a letter, Can I use your name and likeness to sell these things? Roosevelt used to answer all as a male, even as president, and probably without thinking said, Sure, didn't ask for a penny for it. And so, of course, he calls them teddy bears. Uh, they sell well. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it, that just encapsulates the mindset of a lot of hunters today because it was his mindset. And he was just so enthralled with the idea of, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he had a bloodlust. I mean, there's no denying that he had a bloodlust. Over 500 animals on one safari. I mean, that that to me is insane. But at the same time, doing it in a way that is still quote unquote fair to the animals, you know, not this tied up bear in Louisiana. I'm going to shoot it just to shoot it. Right. And a lot of those animals actually ended up back in the States in the Smithsonian and in the Carnegie museums of natural history. We're Pittsburgh guys. Mm -hmm. If you go down to the Carnegie, a lot of those, the the rhino, a couple other ones, those are all Theodore Roosevelt harvested uh, from those post-presidency safaris with his son Kermit. Yeah. I mean, he looked at those hunts, those safaris as a research and scientific endeavor. He was, by killing this animal, I'm able to preserve it and show other people, teach other people about this animal so that they understand the importance of that animal. Um, it, it does seem misguided. It seems crazy to a lot of people how someone can be, can kill animals yet still love them. Right. Um, but as hunters, we understand that complex relationship that we have with the natural world. Um, you know, so one of those guys th- that, did not understand the way that Roosevelt or any hunter was able to kill an animal and yet still love them was John Muir, who was another pillar in the conservation movement, um, was big time involved in getting the uh, Yosemite Valley added to Yosemite National Park and the uh, Mariposa uh, Grove as well. But whenever Theodore Roosevelt had his on his whistle stop tour, took a break to do some camping with John Muir, uh, so John Muir could bend his ear a little bit. He, John Muir was a great writer, and Theodore was a, a book enthusiast, so read his writings. You know, and he confronted him. How how can you kill these animals? 
uh, you know, it's just that different mindset. But at the same time, you can take two people so vastly different on this one subject and they can work so well together later on. Yeah, Roosevelt and Muir's relationship, this sort of frenemy thing they have going, uh, it, it's very unique because you see two people whose passion is clearly conjoined uh, who just have a little bit different perspective. But what Roosevelt had that Muir sometimes lacked was a little bit more of the art of the practical uh, and, the ab- and the ability with his position in politics and the presidency to actually get these things done. Uh, I, I told the Panama story before because I wanted to show you Roosevelt's attitudes on getting things done. Uh, he's in the Everglades bird watching, and he's with some flunky, and he says something along the lines of, I want to make this a federal bird reserve to protect, you know, the, the avian wildlife here. And uh, this, this, you know, flunky guy is with it. Uh, Mr. President, there's no such thing as a federal bird reserve. And Roosevelt looks at him and goes, there is now. Uh, that, that's, that's the way he got things done and was able to seize so much land, able to seize so much territory that I think a lot of other presidents, even if they had his passion and his drive, would not have the ability to make it happen the way Roosevelt is. And I think that's what makes him especially unique in the movement. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the Everglades specifically, you know, you think, I mean, it's pretty much a wasteland, right? It's marshy. You can't really, now we can get through it because we have... Uh, you know, fan boats, right? But at the time, it would have been very hard to trek through that. And even now, I mean, there's it's full of pythons, reptiles. I mean, things that I want nothing to do with, mm. right? But I always say when I when I go hiking, if I don't see my two least favorite animals, I'm happy. People and snakes. <laughs> you know, the reason why it was so important to have that national bird refuge, especially in the Everglades, was because of of all things fashion city fashion so it was feathers in women's hats and some of those hats by the way had full taxidermied birds on top <laughs> okay could you imagine seeing that nowadays right uh but one of the our wives would look good in some taxidermied full birds on their head i mean listen if katie wants a taxidermied <laughs> bird on a hat i will do that for her but probably the one that was the most shocking to learn about this whole fashion trend was one of the most expensive plumages and most sought after was a feather from the egot bird well the only way you could get that feather to look that good was if you killed a female bird on the nest right so obviously that's going to take like a a real big impact on that bird and where's that bird at in the everglades so for him to be able to just decide you know what we're going to have bird refuges and we're going to have this area that you can't shoot birds. I mean, that's huge. And the political bravery, there's tremendous Whoa. blowback. I mean, he is battling the oil companies. He's battling the extremely powerful timber lobby. When he does these things, people think it's going to be political suicide. His donors, now the donors wasn't quite like it was back then, but they're still very important. But remember, he's Mark Hanna's damn cowboy. He owed nothing to no one. He just did what he thought was right i think you have to go to to maybe lincoln to find a guy who just was was driven from a place of integrity the way roosevelt does and he takes these huge political risks yeah you know thinking of the idea of a forest you know the forest and, and all this stuff and we talked a little bit about the difference between muir and and theodore you had muir who wanted to preserve everything keep it as it is 
where you had then Theodore who said, no, no, well, we can use this responsibly, right? We can have sustainable uh, amounts of harvest of these forests. So he creates national forests. And then he also then decides, you know what, we're going to have the U.S. Forest Service, and he has Gifford Pinchot be the head of that, who was all about sustainable harvest of these trees. And that's something that we've lost a little bit on our national, you know, on our public lands, is that sustainable use right now. Um, you know, we've had this green movement. It, it's okay to cut down trees. They, they will grow back, as I have, I'm seeing on personal property that I have now. And it actually benefits the wildlife. But what people lose sort of that thought of is that, you know, what looks good to us is not good for wildlife, right? We think of, think of a beautiful park, freshly mowed grass. You have these big trees you can see for two, three hundred yards. Well, what animal that needs cover is going to like that? You know, would you want to live in a, in a neighborhood that your house was just enough for your body and you can see you know your neighbors 200 300 yards away can see you pass <laughs> so um that, that's a good point too don't think roosevelt wasn't um he was a business-minded president too and he he knew there was a balance there mm-hmm. uh this wasn't you know hug every tree uh this was what is the balance where we can keep this nation strong we can keep this nation a world leader and we can preserve the beauty of, of this nation for future generations. And, and his ability to strike that balance, I think, was really second to none. Yeah, I mean, striking a balance in business with sustainable use, but striking striking the balance just from hunting, right? If we don't shoot every animal, then there's another one that you can shoot tomorrow, you know, or next year or the year after. And that management practice really got put in motion around his time. And he was a driving force for that. Now, someone else who was a driving force for that was Edward Lacey, the Iowa congressman, Republican. He has three different Lacey acts named after him. Uh, the first one was just you are that is still probably the the biggest tenet for conservation law enforcement now is you cannot transport or you can be prosecuted for transporting illegally taken game or plants across state lines. So that was huge. They, they made it a felony. Uh, but before that, he actually. Uh, the first Lacey Act was for Yosemite National Park. The law enforcement up there, you know, they, they said you can't shoot these animals, right? It's a national park. Uh, but people were still doing it and not really getting in much trouble. So he decided to have a whole new act that gave the law enforcement the ability to actually enforce the, that sort of prohibition on taking game in Yosemite National Park. All this happened at the exact same time that... Theodore Roosevelt starring Boone and Crockett Club and Fair Chase and deciding, you know what? We need all these public lands. We need to, to keep these places as good as they are. So, Dave, I need you to, to talk about one last thing. Hmm. That's the Antiquities Act. So, describe for the listeners what the Antiquities Act is and how well Theodore Roosevelt used it. <laughs> well, first of all, Theodore Roosevelt didn't know a whole lot about the Antiquities Act himself. <laughs> he he um, he was desperately searching for a way to make Yosemite, correct? Mm. 
Yosemite into a national park. And he was trying to figure out the political mechanization that would be necessary uh, to make it a national park. And his aide said, all you have to do is declare it. And Roosevelt said, okay, I so declare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was uh, Devil's Tower. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Devil's Tower. Um, You know, how can we preserve Devil's Tower? And I mean, just to give you, I mean, there were 18 different national monuments that he so declared, right? Um, So everything from Devil's Tower to uh, Montezuma Castle to the Petrified Forest in Arizona, which was brought to his attention by John Muir again, um, so helping out his buddy, uh, all the way down to Lewis and Clark Caverns. Uh, Mount Olympus as well. And some of these national monuments have been converted or encapsulated in national parks now. So, like, um, while Mount Olympus was originally a national monument, now it's part of the Olympic National Park. So uh, it, it even just sort of sets the stage for that extra little bit. You know, so, I mean, it, it just... It, this kind of this kind of idea that that he had to preserve these places and set these places aside, right? Um, that basically he said, you know, we're not Europe. We don't have these great monolithical cathedrals and and buildings that are hundreds of years old. We have natural wonders like the Grand Canyon, like Devil's Tower, that are thousands or millions of years old. That's even better, right? So could you imagine? going to where Devil's Tower is today and seeing it not there because there's a mine instead? Or seeing a Starbucks on top of it. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's true. I mean, I love the comparison with Europe. This this was our gift to Western civilization. And uh, it reminds me of, of your line in the bio about being in a tree stand 20 feet closer to God. He said, you know, when I when, when I am in the woods, I think he's talking about the petrified forest. Or no, the Redwood Forest in California mm-hmm. is talking about. He said, this is a grander cathedral to the Almighty than any human hand could ever build. Uh, and the fact that we can still experience that is through the vision and the capability of this one man. Yeah. Uh, again, I'll reiterate, from from the very beginning, by far the best president that, that this nation has ever had. I don't know that uh, everyone would agree with me. You might not agree with me, but but I fully support that statement. Let's just say he's on Mount Rushmore for a reason. <laughs> well, Dave, anything else you would like to add about our teddy bear, Theodore Roosevelt? I could talk about Theodore all day, but I won't bore the um, I can serve listeners. I have to tell just one more story about him because it's, one, it's, once again, one of the ones the students love. Roosevelt, and you touched on this earlier, decides he will not run for a third term because he served mm-hmm. two years of McKinley's term, um, the end of McKinley's term, and then four years of his own. And he said, I'm not going to run this pledge. Goes off to Europe, comes back, decides he can't be out of the game. He decides to run as a third-party candidate in 1912. He says, uh, they ask him, the reporters the, uh, ask him, the bull moose party. Are you feeling strong, <laughs> sir? And he beats his chest and says, I feel as fit as a bull moose. They call the progressive party the bull moose party from that day forward. Roosevelt is in a convertible, and he's on his way to give a speech at the Ladies' Guild <laughs> uh, campaign speech, and a uh, deranged would-be assassin claws his way through the crowd and shoots a pistol right into Roosevelt's chest. 
Roosevelt's knocked back, leaps up, tries to muzzle the man in his own words. Uh, but Roosevelt's bodyguards get to him before TR can. And uh, Roosevelt then beats his chest a couple times, notices that the bullet has passed through a 40-page speech he had folded in his pocket as well as his glasses cases and his tuxedo jacket, and goes, Well, men, might as well go give the speech. <laughs> he goes to the ladies' club. He speaks for 45 minutes. He looks down and sees the wound is starting to bleed out. And he goes, you must excuse me, ladies. You see, I have been shot earlier today and believe I should go to the hospital now. And as the women fainted in the front rows, Roosevelt was taken to the hospital where mercifully the bullet did not do any fatal damage. The idea that you get shot and decide, I'm going to just keep, I'm just, I'm just going to go give this speech anyways, uh, I don't I don't know what is more entertaining and astounding to me that mindset that he had or the fact that he had a 40 page speech <laughs> <laughs> that he was planning to give to a women's guild. <laughs> Each one seems equally brave in honesty. <laughs> it just all these stories about him are just, you know, I mean he he was the leader of the Rough Riders. You know, he had the Great White Fleet that Congress decided he should not uh, showcase to the world. So he sent them halfway around the world. Not a world tour. Yeah. <laughs> I, he, he's this great contradiction. I mean, he's the first president to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And yet he is definitively a warmonger. Mm -hmm. He describes his experience in the Spanish-American War. And this is when he famously leads the Rough Riders. And the Rough Riders, by the way, they are this amazing cross-section of America. He goes and when war is i gotta back up here when war de is declared but with spain um spanish-american war roosevelt is assistant secretary of the navy he, he desperately wanted to fight in his war and in the mid-40s he resigns his post as assistant secretary of the navy pretty important post because he wants to lead a cavalry unit on his own and he recruits men from his travels and you have this incredible mix of you have his rancher buddies from the dakotas you have cowboys from the west you have Native Americans, and you have polo players, and New York one percenters. And he brings, the only thing they had in common was they loved Theodore Roosevelt, and they were the best horsemen in America. He brings them to Spain, and they have to attack this position on San Juan Hill. And he, on horseback, rides up a hill in a Spanish fire. He should have been dead a hundred times. Somehow he's not. He describes it in his own words. I rode up in the hail of bullets. I leapt off my horse. I, spot, I shot a Spaniard in the belly, and he doubled over like a jackrabbit. It was the greatest day of my life. <laughs> so this is Roosevelt, the warmonger in his finest, the great warrior. He's the first president to win the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, this is the guy who's, you know, his bloodlust is unparalleled. He's done more for the conservation of American wildlife than anybody else. It's just, you, you can't make this guy Just up. contradictions and lore and legends abound that seem totally ridiculous when you first hear them. Makes you think, makes me think when I see the, the picture of Theodore Roosevelt riding a moose through a lake. <laughs> like, nah, that's ridiculous. Well, that one didn't happen. <laughs> but, but when you hear the stories and you realize, yeah, these stories really happened, makes you think like, yeah, I could see that happening. I could see him doing that. Uh, if there was anyone that could, it would have been him. Yep. Something special. Well, Dave, this was good. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Jason, thank you for having me on the show. 
I don't know if I'll get invited back, but uh, we had a good time. I think I'll invite you back for a part two. (laughs) Maybe uh, we'll do a little bit of Theodore's legacy and and how we've adjusted and used his platform. All right. Can I say the outro line? Have at her. Until then, stay wild. That'll do it for today's episode. Uh, yeah, Dave did the uh, little tagline at the end, but I'm still going to do uh, my little outro here. Uh, just more than anything to uh, remind you to sign up for our monthly newsletter at conservewild.org. It's right there at, in the header of the page. Go ahead and sign that. Sign up for that with your email and your name. Uh, we're sending out some monthly uh, newsletters that uh, will just sort of let you know what we've been doing for the past month, uh, some conservation issues uh, that you may have missed. Uh, And the other thing I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to listen to Dave's podcast on either Anchor uh, or Spotify. Dave's podcast is called Mr. DeSani's Western Civilization Podcast. Now, it's geared towards his AP World History students, but... He tells some great stories and, and talks about some different parts in, uh, of history and uh, that are just captivating, right? Um, you know, he, he's going to talk for a half hour or 40 minutes, and it, the time just goes by crazy fast. Uh, he just really hits on some great aspects. Really, he he's his podcast, uh, although new, is great. So make sure you head on over to, to uh, Mr. DeSandy's Western Civilization podcast on Anchor uh, or on Spotify and uh, give it a listen. You're really going to enjoy it if you are any type of a history buff, uh, even if you're not a history buff per se, but you're just someone who's interested in uh, learning a little bit. Uh, you're definitely going to learn a lot in, in an entertaining way. So give that a listen. As always, share this podcast that you're listening to today, the Conservation Unfiltered podcast with your family and friends. Subscribe to it so you always get the newest episode uh, downloaded right to your phone. And until next week, stay wild. Mm-hmm.